Mech Pilots Online Battletech Manuals Online Long-Term Memory Offline All Systems Bungled Initiating Bungletech Podcast In our fifth deployment of Bungletech, my spheroid co-host Michael and I take a deep dive into my true love, the Battletech Initiative deck, and talk about our top four picks for most broken and most useless initiative cards. In our Battlefield Outcome Report, highlight a vengeful kill on a victor, talk about an order of operations mistake we've been making with artillery, and read a sample of the short story The Plowshare by DGP Rector. Get down and take cover, mech warriors, cause those long tom shots are creeping in hex by hex. This deployment is gonna be a blast. Primary objective, podcast topic segment, initiating. Welcome my mech warrior friends and nemesis, nemesises, nemesus, nemes whatever. Ah, I don't know this word because I don't have any nemesises. They're all my buddies, just like my buddy Michael, who's joined us again for episode five of the Bungle Tech Podcast. Hello, Michael. This is becoming a really this is becoming a really regular thing. It's almost like I'm here nearly every time. That's right, Michael. It wouldn't be Bungle Tech without you. I don't know if it's a good thing or if that's a bad thing, but it's a true <laughs> thing. It's a true thing. So episode three, we were legit. Episode four, we were washed out. Episode five, I've been thinking of this. It's like the reunion tour. It's only been a few weeks. Quick, random question. Okay, you exist in the Battletech universe. We're a band. What instrument do you play? Where, where do I live in this? Uh, where do I live in this hypothetical? Definitely not in clan space. <laughs> <laughs> They're giving me the easy mode. I feel like... I would play the lute at like Renaissance fairs. I assume they have space Renaissance fairs. And while you're at a Renaissance fair, you can't have a mech there where it would ruin the immersion. Wow. I assume there's probably there's a, probably an entire planet devoted to Renaissance fairs. It's just one big tourist world. You know, there's two things that we've stumbled upon when discussing Battletech. I've never thought of. One was the Battletech LARPing, and now the Renaissance Fairs. Two things that I would never have thought about Battletech. God, this podcast is amazing. We sure are the best. (laughs) And I'm sure our listeners agree. If we don't hear back from you, we know it's the truth, people. Only send us hate mail. (laughs) Okay. Today, we are going to do something super fun and super exciting, but before I start, so Michael and I are going to share our picks of the Battletech Initiative deck regarding our top four broken and our top four useless Battletech Initiative cards, but we want to hear from you. So I've created a survey, and that survey is linked in the description of the podcast. I'm going to keep that survey open till end of May 2023. So if you listen to this in 2048, it's already closed, unfortunately. We're going to look at those results and we're going to discuss them when we come back to this on episode seven. So not the next episode, not episode six, because that wouldn't give us enough time to look at the data. We're going to do episode seven. So if you're inspired by the conversation we have today and you think, 
I'm wrong and you think Michael's right? Well, what a perfect way to show that support. Filling out our survey. It's the perfect way to let us know that you disagree with Nathan. Give us that engagement. And also let me know if anyone else uses this initiative deck. I'm, I am uncertain that anyone other than us actually owns this. Yeah, and I don't know many people that use it. But I'm adamant that I love this thing. I just think it's, it's great. But that being said, there's clearly cards that are broken. And there's clearly some cards that are useless. And the deck itself admits, you know, don't use this if you want balanced gameplay. So it is what it is. I can certainly attest to that. Uh, this has produced some pretty wacky results, including our beloved Moon Fog. So it's fine. It's, it's cool. Talking to you a bit before we recorded, you, you sounded very confident that you knew exactly which cards are broken. And I am almost certain I've picked some different cards than you. So I'm excited to hear your reactions to my picks. Awesome. Okay. So how we're going to do this, people, is we're going to go four, three, two, one. So, you know, the worst of the best and the worst of the worst. The least best and also the least worst. There we go. That doesn't make any more sense to me, but hopefully it clicks to someone else who's listening. <laughs> you know what, actually... I think this is going to be too confusing going back and forth. I think we should just go four, three, two, one on the worst and then the best. The, the useless and then the broken. You got to use the right terminology here. You're, you're confusing the listeners. Editing Nathan. Editing Nathan. Leave this in. Let the viewers know how the sausage is made. <laughs> <laughs> I'm vegetarian. Excuse me. That was the wrong word to use if you wanted to keep it in. Let mind. them know how the veggie sausage is made. Oh, that changes everything. <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do, listeners, instead... Not instead. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they, they're saying behind the curtain. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go up the four most useless and the four most broken alternating with each other. We haven't talked yet about which ones we think are broken or useless yet, so... I personally think we're going to be more aligned than uh, Michael might think, but I'm usually wrong. Number four most useless, Nathan. Okay, so I'm going to start with the card that I think is the best of the most useless cards that I've selected. So it's still really bad. And that is the Ace Flank the Enemy card. It reads as, any friendly unit that fires into the side or rear of any target gains a minus one modifier to those attacks. Why I think this card is not very good is because you're inherently losing initiative. Sure, the, the skill isn't that bad, but because you have the worst initiative, it's also the least likely to be useful. So essentially, its main purpose, in my opinion, is to influence the behavior of your opponent. But... That's very situational based on the, the spacing and all that stuff. So yeah, I just think this card is definitely one of the worst ones. And one thing I should clarify about the initiative deck is that it is alternating initiative. So for example, if we each have two units and Michael wins initiative, I'd place a unit first, then he'd place, and I'd place, then he'd place, essentially in that order. So there still is that staggering effect, but... Honestly, losing initiative, if you're really being careful with your movement, you can totally avoid someone getting in your side or rear arcs. That's my opinion. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree there. This is one of the the cars that I actually like more. I believe you overestimate your piloting abilities, Mech Warrior. There's no way you could keep someone from ever getting into your side arcs. And uh, I, I think probably I value a, a minus one modifier a lot more than you do. So for me, getting a minus one bonus on my attacks is a, is a very nice consolation prize. <laughs> All right. Well, then what's your best of the useless? So my, my fourth most useless would be uh, Social General, which is a six in the Steiner suit. And it is selected unit may take up to a minus three modifier on all attacks it makes this turn in exchange for the same modifier applied to all attacks made against it this turn. I don't like this because I, I think it's a bit situational for when you'd be able to actually use this without it being a massive net negative. Because you, you only get to pick one unit to get this bonus, but all of the enemy units get that bonus when they attack you. There, there are some situations where I could see it working out. Most of the time, it's a middling initiative role. You're not going to want to hold on to it. And if you activate it, one of your units is probably going to get trounced during the weapon attack phase. That card, in my opinion, could be quite powerful if it was higher on the initiative. But because where it is on the initiative, right, it makes it even that more challenging to pilot yourself into the appropriate position where you could use it. Yeah, because you'd basically want to have like one of your units in a one-on-one -on -one situation. But even then, in a one-on-one -on -one situation, you're not giving yourself an advantage. The opponent is going to get the same advantage as you. If it's one-on-one -on -one and your heavy is just pounding some poor tiny, uh, a, little, a little Jenner, uh, Social General would help hit it even harder. But if you're up, if you if the enemy has more guns than you, I would never want to activate this one. I think it's a it's a fun, unique card, and I don't think we've had that ever appear in our games, actually, not that I recall. Yeah, and and part of that's part of that. So I, I mentioned the the suit for this is uh, you only play with a handful of suits at a time, and maybe we should be choosing those suits randomly. We we pick by color here, and I think that means we've we've been biased towards certain colors. Yeah. Totally, we can randomize it. So uh, number three, most useless for you. This one's going to be controversial. I can already tell. <laughs> it is the Star-Lord card. Okay. So the Star-Lord card reads, this card wins initiative. In the end phase, remove this card from the game, discard all initiative cards, including environmental effects, and reshuffle the initiative deck. Cannot be targeted by jam transmission cards. Okay, this card at a glance seems really good, but there's a few reasons it sucks. So first, it wins initiative. It's the best for initiative. But you have to use it. You can't hold it like the other cards for a penalty. And when you compare it to the other cards in the deck that are L's or D's or M's, that are close enough to this in terms of initiative that will get second place on initiative and have wacky powerful abilities this card is just nothing in comparison especially considering we're alternating for movement if it was like my entire lance gets to go after then this card is exceptional but because it just means the difference of one of my mechs going at the end in comparison to it going first i think it is in comparison to the other cards in the deck just really really underpowered 
Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, you know, I didn't even consider this card. I literally, like, my eyes looked past it in the list because, yeah, to me, if I get this card, then it's just no one has initiative cards. Like, yeah, I guess I win, but really it's just a no fun allowed type card. I, I am actually going to agree with you on it. Huzzah! Number three. My number three choice also might be controversial. It's another Steiner card. Number five, Brutal Punch, which is a relatively simple selected unit does plus five damage with all physical attacks this turn. For me, it's there's just not enough in there. The opportunities to do physical attacks are, are not common enough that I could see using this on any old turn. And it's only got a five for initiative. So again, you're not going to want to hang on to that. So most of the time, I think you get this card, you're not in position to do a physical attack, and you discard it. Even if you did manage to draw it at the perfect moment, and you unleash your two punches, you're doing maybe, at best, an AC-10's worth of damage. So for me, it's just too lackluster. Most of the time, it goes straight into the discard pile. Yeah, I think that... The utilization that I would think of for that card would be if I had a single light and I'd give it to light in the hopes that this would just buff up, you know, its power. But when I think about an assault or something like that, it's not necessarily as useful. But that being said, if you have a hundred tonner, they punch for 10, you get two punches. Each punch is now 15. If they both hit and you're hitting on the punch, hit location table, right? A six is a head, which will be a kill. I think a 15 would be an automatic kill. I think it's 15 exactly, actually. So situational. Um, but yeah, I can definitely understand your sentiment for sure. Yeah. And and I will, I will make an exception here. You know, I have actually gotten this card and been excited about it, specifically because we play with pilot abilities. Um, there is a pilot ability, I don't remember what it's called, but it lets you do an extra attack. I think it's called Melee Master. Yeah, Melee Master. So if you have a melee unit, it's something light, so it can get in to do physical attacks on a moment's notice, and it's got three punches that it can do in one round. If I could do an extra 15 damage with a series of punches um, without compromising the rest of my damage, if I have the perfect unit for this with the perfect pilot, yeah. It's all right. Still number three on my list. So Nathan, tell me your number two most useless card in the deck. I feel like these last two. I feel like okay, I definitely feel like we're gonna agree on the worst one. But uh, I think we're gonna. I feel like you're gonna agree with me on this one. Yeah, I think you're right. This one is Carp DM. This card wins initiative but the player's units receive a plus two target number to all attacks this turn, and it's a number six. So, okay, you win initiative, but plus two target number to all attacks? To me, it's like throwing away your good initiative. Yeah, I don't see much value in this card for that reason. I This is not going where I expected. <laughs> I, I, I actually, I kind of like this card. I'll, I, I'm with you, it's not the most powerful. There's, there's some really broken stuff in here, so there's no way it'll be anywhere near my, my broken list. But I think the card's okay. Well, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's nothing too special, but being able to win initiative on demand, like you, you have the choice to, is... Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I can really, like, 
I can't really defend it being a good card. I, I think that I like I like the card. I like the idea of the card. Uh, I like the idea of being able to make a choice to like, you know, win initiative on demand. But yeah, looking at it being only a number, a six on the initiative, you're going to lose most of the time anyways. If you did win, are you really going to hold on to it? No. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I can't really argue. I like the card, though. Like It could have its uses, like you draw it and all of a sudden you're, you're like, you draw it and at this instance it's your objective to run away. You're not attacking, then you can use it straight away. It's perfect. But like like you say... If you don't use it, you're holding it, and you're holding a six initiative, which is not very good, while other people are getting different initiative cards just for the chance to win initiative eventually. It's not that useful, but I mean, it, it does have its uses still. Yeah, okay. I was, I was blinded for my, by my love for the card. You're right. <laughs> what, what I put down for my number two uh, was second wind. Uh, which lets you remove one point of damage or one pilot hit. And I picked this because it's pointless almost all of the time. The only time it's useful is if you're, you've actually taken a bunch of pilot hits. So sometimes, deep in the game, it can come in clutch. But most of the time, minus one damage is actually pointless. What's interesting is... That's actually not on my list, and I was considering it, because when you look at it on paper, I think it's very bad, especially considering it has a low initiative number. But in-game, it's actually saved me from dying from a headshot, and it's also saved me from my pilot getting knocked unconscious forever. So, I can't argue with results. <laughs> You're too emotional, Mech Warrior. <laughs> you can't let... One lucky moment, two lucky moments, ten lucky moments, <laughs> <laughs> ten lucky moments sway you from what, from from the the correct tactical choice on the battlefield. When it comes down to it, are you going to hold on to that second wind card in case you take a hit to the head? No, you're getting rid of that card. It's it's useless most of the time. <laughs> exactly. All right, so I, I think we probably do agree on the number one most useless. Yes, if I'd bet money that we agree on this. Maybe it would be useful if we played with a bunch of rules that we don't play with. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, what is it? What is it, Michael? I, I think... Wait, well, why don't we say it together? Three, two, one. Esprit, Esprit de, de corps. Why <laughs> you say it the real accent way? And I say it like a Western buffoon? <laughs> it doesn't matter. On the battlefield, we only speak one language, and that language is lead <laughs> and lasers and plasma. Very multilingual battlefield. So anyways, yeah, this is number four on the, uh, on the Merrick suit. Um, friendly units receive a plus one to consciousness rolls and are not subject to forced withdrawal, demoralization, or morale checks this turn. Nathan, have you ever benefited from this card? No. And now that I think of it, we should actually just remove all these cards from the deck because, like, the only thing that we use is, you know, a consciousness roll might randomly be helpful, right? But you would never keep this card in your hands. And because we don't play with force withdrawal, demoralization, or morale checks, 
I have to play with those rules and I have to under, even understand those rules to see if this card is good. But definitely for our experience, like every time we get this card straight away, we're like used. I don't think I've ever seen a person hold on to this card. I mean, why would they? We did actually see one person use this and receive the benefit. I think it was actually our last game where there was someone who uh, took a few too many hits to the head. Their pilot went unconscious and it was like three turns. They kept trying to come back to consciousness. And they drew this card and they activated it and they still failed the consciousness roll because it's only a plus one bonus. That was actually me. Another reason I hate this card. <laughs> <laughs> You're clouded by emotion, Nathan. Emotion's all I know, Michael. That's all I know. So, yeah, this card is just, it's, eh, I don't know. I don't know why it's here. Okay, so one out of four were the same for us, but it was the top one. Yeah. So. That's that's good. At least <laughs> yeah. you know, at least we're on the same page with that. But we can see the reasons between all of them, which is good. Mm -hmm. All right, let's start in the opposite direction this time. So now this is the number four of the most broken cards. Michael, you take it away first. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm a little bit worried here. I feel like this is this is where the this is where the mech fisticuffs are going to come out. All of mine <laughs> are. Actually, no. I, I think they're all they're all uh, face cards, obviously, because these are these are the cards that have the like the really big powers, um, and they also all have some sort of a penalty where if you don't spend the card, then it starts stacking a penalty. And so I I picked all ones where I think that I I didn't really pay attention to the penalty. I just looked at the the ability itself. So my number four is dead to rights where a selected unit applies a minus three modifier on all attacks. I just think this is a really solid card. It's not situational at all. A minus three is almost always going to be a good thing. That's a, that's a massive bonus, and I would even hang on to this card until like I was pretty sure I was going to get a good, a good attack in. Um, because yeah, a, a minus three modifier is a huge swing in terms of in terms of the odds of hitting the enemy. You can make any mech a horned owl for one round. That damn annoying horned <laughs> owl. Horned owl with stabilized lasers. Yeah, you know, this is on my list. It's not in this slot, but it's friggin' good. And the penalty, until this card is activated, the player's units reduce their MP by one. Come on. Like, I mean, that's, that's a big deal, losing your MP by one, but is it a big deal? When this is your payoff, like if it was MP by two, then I'd be like, whoa, but now there's a real like balance here. And it's an M, right? So it's, it is essentially excluding Star-Lord. It's the third best initiative card you can draw. And if you start stacking with any other modifiers, because we play with mech quirks and with pilot abilities, if you stack this, like you say, with the Horned Owl, uh, with stabilized weapons and a pilot who specializes in a weapon, you can get some like really guaranteed hits with this. Yeah, that's true, because the Horned Owl literally, especially because the initiative is so good, you put it as your last unit, you probably likely won initiative, and you don't need a jump. You just run as the Horned Owl, get behind in a good position, then you get the minus one for stabilized laser. You're rolling a minus six. That's crazy, right? It's crazy. So I'm, I'm glad we agree that one's broken. Uh, what did you actually put in your number four slot? Number four is Blitzkrieg. So this is initiative 10. 
Selected unit may fire one weapon before the movement phase, applying a plus two target number modifier and no attacker or target movement modifier. Apply heat and ammunition expenditure, and then the weapon may still be fired in the weapon attack phase. The reason I think this is quite broken is it's a light killer. It's like I, I maneuver my light in a way where, you know, my movement modifier is really high, maybe I have a plus five or something like that. Yep. I land in a good position and I'm fighting a victor and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm close. The victor's going to miss their shot. They jump, blah, blah, blah. Their pilot skill, they're like hitting me on a 10 up in this situation. Then next round, they activate this. All of a sudden, they're hitting me on a four up. It's just a free hit with something like an AC-20. That's really, really devastating if you're using lights. Yeah, I, I can see that. Um, I, I did look at this card, but you know, ultimately, I didn't put it on my list because maybe because I'm not so emotionally attached to lights. But uh, yeah, it, it definitely it is a it is a, a really easy attack. Uh, it's probably more than a minus three overall bonus for uh, for that one attack. I'm, I'm always a bit wary of any cards or rules that break the usual flow of the game declaring an attack out of phase is is it's weird and it breaks up the flow of the game as well this is one of those cards that when i'm playing is just going to be in my head and if someone holds this card and i'm playing lights even though they're losing initiative they're functionally winning initiative for me because i need to think like a turn ahead psychologically man it's oh straight to the crazy house okay michael number three so my, my number three, I actually picked, I, I think for a similar reason uh, as you picked Blitzkrieg, uh, is Headshot. So this is a card where you pick one weapon, and if you get a, if you score a hit with that weapon, you roll a die six, and on a six, it's a headshot. Otherwise, you roll for the, the normal hit location afterwards. And I, I think that this card feels broken to me for a similar reason of it can just take a mech out of the fight. It's a bit situational. If you have a, a heavy weapon on your side, though, this basically is a, a one in six chance of wiping another mech off of the field. And it's obvious this one, instead of whereas Blitzkrieg you felt was sort of a light killer, this for me is more of a, like an assault killer. You have a, a one in six chance of just eliminating a big chunk of your opponent's battle value. So I, I don't like it for that reason. Yeah, I think that would, would have been number five for me. I mean, just like Blitzkrieg, it's scary to, to know someone has that card. It's going to change your behavior a little bit. I mean, one in six, it's the same thing as a punch. But unless you have brutal punch, the max you can punch at is 10. And, you know, you're going to have some guns like an AC-20 that can do more than that. So, scary. All right, number three for you. Ambush. This is a card that is number 10. It, uh, our initiative value is 10. It reads as, may be activated at any point during the movement phase. If the selected unit has not moved, it may interrupt another unit's movement to move and make one weapon or physical attack. The movement phase resumes as normal. The selected unit may not move or make any attacks again this turn. I don't think there's been a situation yet where this has been super useful, but when I was reading this, I was really thinking, oh man, this gives me a guaranteed charge attack against people. It basically means as a light or whatever, I can 
jump jet in, end my turn in like optimum charge range, and then next round activate this and just do a straight out charge into my opponent. And charges can be devastating. One of the reasons they're well, I mean, one of the balance reasons is everybody's moving. You never know what, how someone's going to move and all that fun stuff. But with this card, this allows you to actually control that a lot more. I think in the situation of, you know, a Banshee doing a charge attack or even, even a Locust, a 20-tonner that can move. I think they can move like 15 or something like that. Probably more. You can really do some devastating attacks with this. But still situational. I don't think it's necessarily that good for the weapon attack. I think it's all about the physical attack. Doing a charge or a guaranteed death from above, right? Like those big high risk physical attacks. That's what this is made for. I'm going to be real with you. This didn't even this didn't even register on the broken uh, meter for me. This is, this is sitting down. This is the little the little gauge is pointing at not broken for me. <laughs> I, I don't I don't see it as like that that dangerous. Like, yeah, maybe you get off an attack, but you probably could have if you won initiative anyways. I guess you could use it for a double move. You're right, but I I just can't see it. I I just don't like the card. I I don't like because. You know, if Blitzkrieg like messes with the usual flow of the game, this game, this card really messes with the flow. You have to do a whole round of movement, and someone else, someone else is like counting out their spaces, and you're like, ah, wait, stop now. And then you do a movement phase, and then you like write out your numbers to calculate your attacks and stuff, and everyone else is like sitting around checking their phones. I just think it's a bad card. But I don't think it's a broken card. That's also a challenge with it, like, may interrupt another unit's movement to move. Okay. People don't, like, count the spaces necessarily, or... I guess they would. They'd say, I'm moving here. And then you'd say, okay, I actually stop you at this point and hit you with a charge. It's weird. It's one of those weird things that, like you say, it's like Blitzkrieg. It just, it just interrupts the flow. It's strange, but, uh... Maybe it's because I like physical attacks so much, but man, if I ever get this card, I'm going to mess someone up with the charge. I'm just, I totally am going to try it because. <laughs> now I know you shouldn't have told me. Now I'm going to use that against you. If it only, if it gave me two moves in a row, it's different, but it gives me the move and the attack, you know? So it's like, I feel like you can't escape. All right. Number two, what you got? What you got? All right. My number two is luck of the dragon. When activated, all of a player's units may re-roll any die roll this turn. One re-roll per unit must accept the second result. So I actually, I think this is one of the best cards, but I also don't feel that it's too broken personally. I just think that it's, it's really solid. Uh, it really tilts the odds because it's for all of your units. It can, you know, it's just a, a significant tilt in your favor for that turn. There are a lot of things you can do with a re-roll. You can make that weapon that you really needed to hit hit uh you can re-roll for a second chance at hitting an important component uh there's a there's a lot of things that you can do here this card if i ever draw this card i'm i'm in a good place i'm happy about it and it's an l right yes for some reason i think that draconis combine l with them is actually they're the best that's the best initiative card other than star lord in the suits 
maybe I'm wrong. I think it's either the first or the second of the best suits. So even if other people have L's, you're still likely to win. Yeah, that's a really, really good card. Like a very good card. I was considering that too. But it's the same as you. It's weird. Even though I know it's exceptionally good, I don't know if I feel like it's broken, but it's it's something that I was considering putting on here. Um, What's the negative penalty on it? Uh, until it's activated, add plus five heat cumulative for every card it's retained. Yeah. Every turn it's retained. And the plus five heat, if you're a clan mech, it doesn't matter. If you're an inner sphere mech, it matters. So I think having the heat as a consequence is just, to me, that's one of the things about the niche deck that I don't think is very fair because, you know, clan mechs in general have just way better heat management. So that penalizes different people differently. And I, I could see actually holding on to that card a few a few turns until I had like a turn I was, knew I was giving a lot of attacks. 100%. Super good. All right. So what is your number two? It was your number four. Dead to rights. That's the minus three modifier on all attacks. We already talked about it. This card is just very good. Don't need to talk about it more. Yeah. All right. Number one most broken. I I'm almost no, certain no, we no, have no, different no, choices. No, 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 We've got no, different. No, no. I'm pretty no, sure. No, 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 Michael, don't sure. do this to me. We have to be on the same page of the number one. <laughs> we 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 are pretty much in agreement for two through four, and I think that we disagree on number one. Okay, okay. Countdown again. All right, let's do it. Three, two, one. Intimidation Bang. tactics. What? <laughs> I told you. How do you? How was intimidation tactics not on your list? This, it's this number five. Screwed us. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Explain, explain, explain your number one. Okay, so for me, the uh, the the most broken is Fane. Uh, so this is the House Merrick L, um, and after all fire is declared in the weapon attack phase, activate this card and select a unit. Prevent all damage done by and against that unit. Apply heat effects and expend ammunition as normal. So for me, this card is just too big of a threat. It's something you can't really play around very effectively. If someone has this card in their hand, they don't even need to announce at the beginning of the turn that they're activating this. They only do it once you've declared fire, which means... You have a you have a, a a mech of Damocles hanging over you where they can just declare, oh, this mech isn't actually getting attacked. All of your attacks, they don't happen this turn. Well, all the consequences do, but no damage actually happens. I, I think this card is just too good to play around. I like the idea that they're going with here, being able to basically like it's supposed to be a feign. You know, I, I put one I put my mech out of position. Um, and you, you go to attack it, but actually it was all a ruse. You fool, you played right into my plans. But in reality, the fact that you could just activate it after weapon fire has already been declared, I, I can't abide this card. I, I don't like it. If I were to change this, I would make it so that you activate it, say, after movement. So you can, you, you move your unit. Uh, everyone does their movements, and then you say, oh, this guy, actually, that mech can't be attacked. Then I would accept it. But the fact that they can put their mech out there, and if you choose to attack it, they activate their card. If they choose not to attack it, they just hold on to the card. 
you're as long as your opponent has this card, you're going to be stuck like spreading your fire over as many different units as possible, uh, just to mitigate the the effect of them holding this card, not even playing it. That's my spiel. I don't like this card. Come at me. What's the negative on it? Uh, it's another one of the plus five heat. Yeah, that card is very very good. I can understand why that made your top four and even your top one. But you can't see why I don't hate intimidation tactics. Okay, here's the funny thing. So, in standard Bungle Tech fashion, as I'm rereading this card, I think that the reason why I think it's broken is because we've actually been using it wrong. Oh. Yes. Okay, so I'll read it. It's L, Intimidation Tactics, oh lord. One heavy or assault unit demoralizes all enemies within 10 hexes. These enemy units cannot end their movement phase within 10 hexes of selected unit and suffer a plus 2 modifier to attacks that target it. Till this card is activated, the player units add 5 heat. Cumulative for every turn this card is retained. So the cumulative that makes this one pretty bad. This card has just completely messed up our games. How we've played this card is the heavier the salt activates it, and the unit doesn't just have to be further away at the end of the turn they have to be as far away as they possibly can so whenever someone activates this card we then spend about 10 minutes figuring out the exact paths that are even viable and because we're playing with advanced rules the movement's not so simple so now all of a sudden it's not just running we have sprinting you know we have evasive movement stuff like that likely when someone activates this you're going to be pretty close it's a 10 hex range they activate it they force you to run, you're probably going to have to sprint. When you sprint, it actually gives people a minus one modifier to hit you because you're just running in a straight line, essentially. So your retreat that's going to put you in a worse position makes it easier for people to hit you. Every time this has been used in a game, it's been a turning point in the game. But here's what I think we were doing wrong. We were playing this like the heavy or assault unit, when people are attacking it when this is activated, it gets a plus two modifier to attacks that target it. But actually... This actually leads into one of my other concerns. I, I wish that we had like extended rules for all these cards in the booklet. Totally. Because yeah, we've tried to look up demoralizes and stuff like that, and uh, all the information we've found in the books... Have, hasn't really added anything to this actually so we've been making it so like the big guy that's scary that's like oh, i'm in a heavy mech and everyone's like ah run away that it's harder to shoot him but as this actually reads that people that are running away are harder to shoot because maybe they're deranged and crazy doesn't make any sense so it surprised everybody's like we're in a battle why are they running away for a heavy assault mech they knew what they were getting into or they're they're just ducking and covering if you want to take a more charitable interpretation. So I think we were doing that wrong, right? I think you're right. I, I think so. Because then, in this situation, if I'm forced to run away, it's still powerful, but at least I know it's not going to be super easy to hit me. Whereas in the other, what I was talking about, sprinting, is usually you're going to be forced to sprint. Even though you're going relatively farther when you're sprinting, you still are easier to hit. So this would sort of counterbalance that a little bit. With that in mind, this would no longer be my top one. But I don't know what would be that I'd add to the list. But uh, with the way we were playing it still, it's just, like I say, every time we've played in a game, it's been a big turning point. 
Yeah, I I didn't end up ranking it on my top four, um, but I I think it would have been my number five. Uh, it's it's situational. A lot of the time, this card does nothing, but when it does work, it can produce some really wacky situations. It's just kind of a weird card, and I I would say it's a bit unusual in that like, so there's there's a few cards in the deck that basically take abilities that are pilot abilities and then turns them into a card for one-time use. And this one takes the Demoralizer ability, but like Demoralizer itself is really hard to use. Like it, it has a similar effect of basically preventing people from getting closer but it is way dialed back in the original campaign ops you know campaign ops had uh you basically you have to spend your entire weapon phase intimidating the enemy with a with a pilot skill check you don't get to fire any of your weapons and if you succeed all it prevents the target unit from doing is it can't close in towards you it has to walk and it can't get closer to you the fact that they dialed up so there's no check, there's no saving throw from any of the other people. Uh, it just hits everything within 10 hexes. And not only can they not approach you, they have to get out of being close to you. They have to be more than 10 hexes away. Yeah, and 10 hexes is huge whenever we're counting this out on the board, right? Okay, what's the radius? You know what I mean? It's, it's 10 hexes is humongous. Yeah. And all enemies, wow. But uh yeah, yeah. Still still powerful. If we were doing it the right way though, it wouldn't be in my top four for sure. For the right game mode though, it definitely is game losing. Nathan's caught some some long range gauze rounds in his back, strolling away from an intimidating mech. Exactly. Forcing me to give my back, because that was the only way I could get to more than ten hexes. Crazy. I also think that like uh, this is powerful in an attack defend if you're a defender. People are coming in and you're like, oh, I'm a heavy. And they're like, oh my god, a heavy. Ah! Or if you're an attacker, you just sprint in and say, I'm a heavy. Steiner Scout Lance oh, yeah. is here. <laughs> and they just got to scatter. Well, that's our four most broken and four most useless. And well... They were more different than I thought. Despite us agreeing with each other, our list was quite different, which is fun. But as long as we agree on the most useless one. That was fun. And uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear if anyone else have similar or different thoughts. So uh, go fill out the survey. I want to I hear what you think is broken and or useless. Yes. And as a reminder, once that's filled out, so we'll keep it around to the end of May, we'll take a look at it and discuss it in our seventh episode which would be sometime in June. That's the plan. We're great with plans. Tertiary objective. Battlefield outcome report segment. Initiating. Nathaniel Smithson reporting from Galaport Galatia live as a heated blood pit match nears its finality. This skirmish has already seen the death of the paired blood sister Jenners. Having been cleaved in two earlier on with a precise AC-20 round sealing the fate of the coordinated assault. Now, only the misfit bushwhacker stands in the way of Lawson's victor. 
fate seems to have already written the last day for the misfit, as its legs seem to be critically damaged. Will the misfit rise to the occasion? Ah. And just like that, the bushwhacker is crippled, having both of its legs destroyed. Lawson's victor stands resolute on the battlefield, barely scarred as he takes in the smoldering mechs around. My goodness! The victor's head has been blown right off! Bye! Bye! The misfit supporting aerospace fighter pilot after the battle was won? What treachery! What despicable strategy! Yet just another reminder of the chaos of the battlefield. As a riot builds in the betting stands surrounding me, I bid you adieu. This is the Interstellar News Network signing off. Always first on the scene. So, what happened? A victor incapacitated a bushwhacker. But the bushwhacker, in a final act of retaliation, called an artillery strike before the round end and blew the head off the victor. Well, how did it happen? After the victor incapacitated the bushwhacker in weapon attack phase by taking out its second leg, the bushwhacker in its dying breath called in two light airstrikes utilizing an initiative card from the Battletech initiative deck. The first airstrike missed, but the second hit, and two of the three five damage clusters landed on the head of the victor, killing it as it stood victorious. Truly an epic moment of stealing victory right out of the grasp of the victor. Unfortunately though, as epic as this moment was, it was actually only possible due to a bungle on our part. Let's dig into that a bit more in our next segment. Secondary objective, rule check discovery segment. Initiating. Welcome back everybody. So if you're paying attention to the battlefield highlight you just heard, you realize that there was a rule mistake we made in there. But before we go into that, I just want to mention one thing about episode 4's rule mistake, which was the falling. How we didn't think you were falling in the hex, we thought you were falling hexes away. There was one thing that made this exceptionally crazy, and I can't believe we forgot about it when we remembered. But the same rule applied after you fell and were standing up and fell again in that spot. So you'd have a mech fall, it would stand up, you'd roll to see if you would stand or fall, you'd fall, then all of a sudden you're two hexes to the left. Just imagine how much that cascaded into craziness. Do you remember any of that, Michael? No, but uh, it. every time I remember the mechs falling far away, uh, it brings a smile to my face. I, I always have a good time remembering that. Oh. What a goofy, goofy game we used to play. Yeah, which we will soon have as the game mode. So anyhow, the rule mistake that we are talking about this week has to do with artillery in Battletech. So long story short, the artillery phase takes place before the weapons attack phase, not after. From the battlefield highlight you just heard, you realize that the pilot managed to kill the mech after he was downed through his artillery. Technically, that wouldn't have been possible. Technically, the artillery would have landed before the victor managed to kill the bushwhacker. I think this rule mistake came about, frankly, because we started using artillery through the initiative deck. And we're like, okay, there's no rules in here about when the artillery phase happens. 
none of us had used artillery weaponry yet. So we're like, okay, where makes sense? Uh, let's just put it after weapon attack phase, because it's a ranged weapon. It makes sense, right? This changes things quite a bit, doesn't it, Mike? Yeah, opinion? yes and no. Um, I, I, I don't think the turn sequence is, is too important. I think probably, because we didn't make a lot of use out of artillery uh, until recently when, when we sort of had nailed down the rules. If I remember, you actually ended up looking this up because we were trying to figure out Arrow 4 missiles. Or Arrow IV, as the classy people call them. Do people actually call it that? I do. All right. I'm not sold. Let me make an argument for why it should be called Arrow IV. The reason it should be called Arrow IV is because if you write, if you try to search Arrow 4 in the books, you won't find it. There is no Arrow 4, but there is an Arrow IV. What does the IV stand for? Okay, it stands for 4. I understand it stands for 4. What happened to Arrow 1, 2, and 3? That's something... Lost tech. Lost tech. Does that mean they're better? They've been getting steadily worse. Oh, man. Arrow 1 must have been intense. LRMs are actually Arrow 5s. And then SRMs are, are Arrow 6s. And then arrow sevens are just uh, elementals with rocks. Oh, man. I don't think elementals can throw stuff in the game. Really? Gap in the rules. Because it's based on tonnage, and I don't think there'd be anything under the tonnage equivalent in the game for them to throw for damage-wise. So, I mean, they could throw, you could say, you could maybe say that with spirit, they chuck some rocks but it wouldn't do any damage. Anyhow, that could be another game mode, Elemental Rock Battle. We are, we are wandering way away from artillery here. Back to why it matters. Okay, so why do you think this is, this is uh, important? Because you, when, when you were telling me about this originally, then you, you were like, oh my god, like, I, I forgot about how big this is. Like, it, it, it would have changed everything. Yes. You, you, I don't know if you said that, but it's the sort of thing you would have said. So, so why, why is it so important? Stopping force. That's why. Like in the example of the previous battlefield highlight example, where it was your bushwhacker and you killed the victor after the victor killed you, the victor wouldn't have killed you. So if you're defending a facility, in the old rules, how we were playing it, it basically gives the attackers an extra opportunity to get a shot off, potentially, before you can get that hit out. And that makes the initiative card more powerful, too. Because now you don't need to survive to use the initiative card. The initiative card that gives you those light airstrikes has the potential to knock out your opponent before they get the chance to attack you. That's a big deal, in my opinion. And it also sort of reflects what artillery should be, right, in battle. Like, artillery should be this daunting stopping force, not necessarily something that is an afterthought. It is, when we think of it, it is the what happens before the attack or as the attackers are coming in before they reach the base. That's when the artillery is hitting. So I think thematically, too, it makes a lot more sense. Can I, uh, can I potentially blow this wide open with another maybe bungle on our bungle oh god so we may have actually played that round with the artillery and the victor 
that might have actually been played correctly because that was playing with Battlefield support. And Battlefield support is in the new Battle Mech manual that I don't actually know if we had at the time uh, when we were playing this. We were, we were just going off of the classic tactical operations and the other core rulebook whose name escapes me. Uh, yeah, so, so we were playing just with Total Warfare and tactical operations at the time. The Battle Mech Manual is actually where Battlefield support is added. Instead of simulation artillery, it abstracts artillery to just Battlefield support points. And in the Battle Mech Manual, it says support types can be used during the weapon attack phase on any turn of the game. Can be used. Can be used. And there is no mention of the indirect artillery attack phase. Interesting. However, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have changed the outcome. So we were still slightly wrong. We were still mildly wrong. That's the best we can hope for. Mildly wrong. <laughs> um, whereas you with your so this this is actually a, an interesting thing is I don't actually know what the right rule is anymore. Like, does the battle mech manual rules for artillery supersede tactical operations? Or does tactical operations layer on top? Because there's still a modern tactical operations. So I don't know. And uh, similarly, um, like I, I think Battle Mech Manual has made a similar change to Arrow 4s, uh, where it calls it the simplified Arrow 4 rules, where it makes those happen also on the weapon attack phase. I guess it's whether you're playing with battlefield support where it's supposed to happen during the weapon attack phase, or off-board artillery, in which case it's supposed to happen during the indirect artillery attack phase. But I guess we can just house rule to happen whenever we want. Free country. Yeah, I guess we gotta double-check that then. That's interesting that the Battletech manual contradicts. I don't know what's right anymore. <laughs> so we know, we know what's wrong, but we don't know what's right. Ah... <sighs> Typical bungle tech. Tertiary objective. Stories of the inner sphere segment. Initiating. Core word deep periphery. 20th of May, 3049. With the hands so covered in burned scars the flesh looked melted, Gorton held his bottle of stale beer. He'd worked 1,500 hectares today, more than twice as much as any other farmer. But then... He had Tamoy, and they didn't. Through the open doors of the bar, he could hear raucous laughter, cheers, and jeers at whatever idiot program was being rebroadcast. Roskin was so deep in the periphery, they only got a merchant ship perhaps once a year, sometimes less. This year it had come even later than usual, but the colonists hadn't noticed. Every jump ship captain worth their salt knew a good collection of holovids was worth a fat stack of sea bills to the Roscani. These people didn't know what the inner sphere was really like, but they could tell you exactly who won the Solaris heavyweights in 36. They had no idea how lucky they were to be this far out. Gorton liked it here. Roscan was as quiet as quiet could get. Nobody knew who he really was, just that he'd made his money with Tamoy in the past. And now, they'd come here for retirement. 
They didn't know how valuable she was, how you could probably buy half the colony for her price tag. Well, no, that was a lie. They knew she could do the work of a score of threshers, clear hundreds of hectares of forest in a day, and they were glad of it. She was one of the most sophisticated pieces of machinery on the planet. Go figure she'd first been made for killing. Memories were coming back harder these days. Most people Gorton's age started to get fuzzy, see the past in rose hues. For him, it was the opposite. He heard voices, saw sights, sometimes beautiful, sometimes terrible, all as if they were happening in front of him. He remembered the diamond mountains of Novo Canton lit by laser fire, and the waters of Zhang's ocean churning beneath steel feet. He could see it all clearly, with his battle mech's HUD laid over it. Even now, looking into the darkness where Tomoy stood sentry at the edge of the field, he could place a perfect reticle over her. The same with the whole damn town. Sometimes Gorton felt his arms tense, as if he had a fistful of lasers just waiting to be released, to burn everything in sight. A colonist would smile at him, remark on the weather, and Gorton would bite his tongue. Secretly, he wanted to scream at them. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I am? Of course they did. They'd seen it all in perfect hollow vision. He was a mech warrior, a gallant knight errant from a bygone era. Who else would have come all this way to protect them from pirates lurking in the periphery? People didn't run as far from civilization as Gordon had just to find a quiet place to die. His beer was almost empty when Gordon realized something was wrong. There was no more laughter coming from the bar. A muffled voice came on the hollow vid set. Everything else was silent, save the scuffle of boots against the unvarnished floor. For a moment... Gorton had the paranoid fantasy that somehow these people had hurt him. He'd done it before, started talking to himself when he believed he was just thinking. Then, he realized why the vid's sound was so muted. It was a live broadcast. Quietly, Gorton got up from where he sat on the porch and stepped into the bar. From the back of the crowd, he watched the screen. The images were grainy, something falling from the sky fire is burning among the trees. Then, a flight of helicopters, what passed for the colony defense force. The lead chopper fired a salvo of missiles, lasers streaked through the darkness in response. And one by one, the choppers exploded in flames. The last image, a tracking air riddled freeze frame was of a battle mech emerging from the forest. Are at this time encouraging all residents to take shelter. Do not continue agricultural work. Militia units are to report to supply depots immediately. The voice of the colonial authority broadcast system was droning on, but no one in the bar was listening. Pirates, was the word whispered among the crowd. It had been years since Roskan was last hit, but it's always possible. Gordon shook his head. He'd never seen a mech like that before. But even in that grainy image, there were details he could make out. It was pristine, and it had some kind of insignium blazoned on the chassis. Not the crude kill markers and snarling fright masks of a bandit crew. No. It was a military unit. They weren't being raided. This was an invasion. As all eyes in the bar fell on him, 
he knew what they were going to ask. He had to go back to work. Real work. Crap, was all Gordon could think to say. That's when Hornet 3 went down. We're still light on details, but Protector Johannes thought it was essential that you all be up to speed. The man speaking was Colonel Milovich. Colonel was a self-appointed title. He was little more than a bureaucrat, the same as Protector Johannes. Gorton didn't have a high opinion of either of them, but as they let him live on their world, he couldn't exactly speak against them either. Still, something rankled him about people who could find desk jobs on a colony that needed so much manual labor. Milovich didn't look like the sort of man who spent his life behind a desk. He was trim and fit beneath his gaudy blue and gold uniform. No one else in the Roscani militia had a dress uniform like his. Just earthy brown fatigues and second-generation flak jackets. Gorton was again reminded that he was surrounded by amateurs. In the years he'd spent among the Roscani, they'd only chased away two pirate raids. And to call them raids was generous. More like aborted landings. A quick exchange of missiles and long-range laser fire. Then the pirates had scuttled right back into their dropships and hightailed it to whatever rat hole they crawled out of. With opponents like that, it was no wonder a preening buffoon like Milovich was the best this planet could do, as far as soldiers went. They were at Cordoba City Supply Depot, a place mostly for storing thresher machines, spare parts, and their armed stockpile, while Gorton sat with Milovich and the others in a back room. The rest of the militia was busily cleaning and preparing their weapons. They'd ride out in a convoy together, with every volunteer from the surrounding farms. There were maybe 200 people among Cordoba's defense reserve, less than half of them fighting fit. As for the convoy, it would be made up of trucks meant for grain and lumber. A single autocannon round would light one up like a landing day bonfire. Gorton was crowded into the impromptu command center with Milovich, his grease monkey Bien, and a few militia officers. The militia's captain was a woman called Janice Tsung, owner of the biggest farm in the area. So, they're around Jorman Heights, Janice asked. That's the last location we spotted them, Milovich replied. They haven't made any moves for Liminoff City yet, which is unusual. The Liminoff Guards unit is digging in, and we're trying to get as many as the reserve choppers flight-worthy as we can. Well, I guess we should head out, shouldn't we? Is there anything else we need to know? Janice asked. Milovich looked at Gordon. Gordon shrugged. He'd stayed silent during the briefing. He didn't want Colonel Milovich to think he was questioning orders. Or worse, plant the idea that he should be in command. The militia might just take him up on that. And that was the last thing he wanted. Milovich cleared his throat. <clears> There's one more bit of business, he said. We discovered the enemy had tried to contact us several times during Planetfall. Apparently, they thought we had better comms than we currently possess. After that initial engagement, they sent us a message on our standard comm bands. Asking for surrender? Janice asked. No. They transmitted... Well, language is a little bit difficult to decipher. It sounded something like an apology? An apology? Gordon blurted. Milovich nodded. We think they want to enter some kind of negotiation. 
Protector Johannes wants all militia forces present, in case things go wrong. We're hoping they're as good as their word, and maybe this can be resolved peacefully. I doubt that, Gordon said. So far, they haven't fired on anyone else. Our scanners have had a hard time picking them up, but they don't seem to have moved beyond the heights since they arrived. At present, there's no reason to doubt them. Nobody who drops a full lance of battle mechs just wants to chat, Gordon said. Janice nodded solemnly. If we've got to fight, my people are ready, she said, sounding more certain than she looked. Good, Milovich replied. Well, if there's nothing else, we best head out. I assume you and your vehicle are ready, Mr. Gorton. They still didn't know Gorton's last name, which was fine with him. Bien spoke up, always eager. He was young, but the closest thing the Roscani could muster to a real mechanic. The kid was a genius. He'd adapted Tamoy to Gorton's requested specifications and kept her running smoothly. She's ready, Bien said proudly, purring like a kitten, even after all that forestry work last week. Milovich nodded. Glad to hear it. All right, everyone. See you in Limanov. Dismissed. Janice threw a half-hearted salute that Colonel Milovich crisply returned. No one else in the room bothered. Limanoff City, Roskin, Core War Deep Periphery, 21st of May, 3049. They arrived a few hours before dawn, while the world was still shrouded in blue light. Limanov was as close to a capital as the colony had, a small outcropping of rectangular metal buildings nestled in among massive grain silos and sprawling lumberyards. Gordon halted to Moy between a pair of silos, not far from the main boulevard. He dismounted, while Bien ran her through a few final checks before they both snatched a scant hour or two of sleep at the local barracks. The militia were not so lucky. Bleary-eyed, they'd been improving the entrenchments around the city's outer perimeter. Dawn came, and with it a gentle prodding from Bien, he explained Milovich's plan in hushed tones, something the colonel had cooked up during the long ride over in his staff car. Sounds like theater, Gordon grunted. Bien shrugged. That's exactly what the colonel said. My grandsire was a Lyran diplomat, and he said theater is half of diplomacy and blah-de-blah-blah. Blah, blah. Orders are orders, though, right? He said with a smile. The kid had never been in an actual military outfit a day in his life. For him, this was an adventure. Hell, he'd probably been praying something like this would happen. All right, Gordon said. Scrounge me up a bottle of that local vodka, yeah? Then we'll get situated. Vodka? You really think you should be drinking on the job, old man? When you get your own mech, you decide who drinks in her and who doesn't, alright? Now hurry it up. Bien hustled off. Gorton sat on the cot he'd commandeered, running his hands over his scalp. His hair had gone thin a long time ago. He could still feel the burned scars in some places. As he rose, Gorton caught a look at himself in a shaving mirror someone had set up. He had old, tanned skin, the texture of leather. His remaining hair was white and long, and he had a drooping mustache the same color. The stubble on his weak jaw was still iron gray for some reason. He reached a hand up to the neck of his shirt and pulled it down slightly. There it was, an expanse of smooth scar tissue just barely peeking out beneath his collarbone. His whole chest looked like that, 
and down one of his legs, too. Tomoy had been cross with him that day. He hadn't treated her right, and she taught him a lesson he would never forget. Now he and the old girl were headed for battle once again. He hoped she didn't have any new lessons in store. I've sent the signal, sir, the comms operator said. Good, Milovich replied. Now we just wait. Remember, no sudden moves. You're all to state attention, am I clear? This is theater. Remember that. Half of diplomacy is theater. We make an impression on them, let them know we're not afraid. Understood? Gorton was watching from Tomoy's cockpit, hidden and running near zero. Just her comms and scanners were up, as was a screen link with the cams and Milovich's entourage. The colonel had taken his people and their gear a good 40 meters beyond the perimeter, standing foolishly far from cover. The camera swept the open field beyond Limanov, up to the forested hills of the Jorman Heights. Then, it froze. Even this far away, Gorton could hear the telltale thump, thump, thump of a battle mech's tread. Like monsters in a fairy tale, they seemed to materialize out of the misty woods. There were five of them, war machines of a make he had never seen before. The lead was the largest, easily in assault class, strange and menacing. It had a human shape, one arm ending in a heavy cannon, the other in a clenched fist. Its head resembled a scowling face with ethereal green eyes. The mech reminded Gordon of the stone gods of old Terra, the kind people used to offer the hearts of their enemies to. The giant surveyed the field with the cold imperiousness of a conqueror. Then, it did something Gorton had not expected. It charged. The giant's speed was incredible. Each stride tore up the earth. Plumes of mud shot upward in its wake as if artillery shells were raining down behind it. Steady, Milovich murmured over the calm, voice quavering. Steady, it's all theater, just theater. Gordon took a slug from his bottle of vodka, hands ready to switch Tomoy to combat mode. The giant bore down, eyes fixed on the colonel's small party, heedless of the world around it. When it was less than a dozen meters away, it came to a sudden and graceful halt. A spray of mud and clods of earth landed at Milovich's feet. Gordon could tell the colonel was silently fuming. The giant was still. Faint vapor trails wafted up from its chassis, the dead sprint heating it in Roscan's cool morning air. Now that it was so close, Gordon could finally get a good look at what was painted on the battle mech's torso. It was a simple, striking sigil. A scorpion clutching the sun. Another vehicle came to a stop beside the giant, a hovercraft that had sped along behind it. These invaders were more clever than Gordon had given them credit for. The giant's charge had been a distraction as much as anything else. The militia's missile pods could barely damage an assault mech if they were lucky, but the hovercraft would have been a different matter entirely. He hadn't even noticed the damn thing's heat signature. The doors on the craft slid open, and an assortment of strange figures stepped out. There were armed guards in gray and black combat fatigues, and people who must have been technicians, judging by the equipment they carried. Most curious among them was a woman leading a dog-sized lizard on a leash. It flicked out its tongue, tasting the air. 
The motley assortment stood to attention, and then with what sounded like a groan, the giant slowly lowered to one knee. A hatch opened, and the mech's pilot descended a short chain ladder with a measured, dignified pace. Upon reaching the ground, he glanced briefly at his assembled troop, then strode toward Colonel Milovich. He looked like something out of a legend. Tall and broad, he wore a gray breastplate with that scorpion insignia proudly emblazoned on it. His face was concealed behind a black litham, exposing only a pair of deep green eyes. Atop his head, he wore a spiked helm trimmed with fur, like the steppe warriors of ancient Terra. A black cape billowed behind him in the morning breeze. He came to a halt less than an arm's length from Colonel Milovich. Compared to this strange warrior, Milovich looked like a child playing dress-up. His uniform seemed even more gaudy and ridiculous. As if on cue, the leashed reptile let a long, throaty growl. It whipped its tail back and forth and scuffed the ground, but provoked no reaction from the outsiders. Milovich visibly flinched. You are the leader, I presume? He asked, regaining some of his composure. I am Star Captain Rao of Clan Goliath Scorpion, the outsider replied. I'm Colonel Milovich of the Roskin Colony Defense Force. Sir, you have made an illegal landing on our planet. I request that you withdraw your forces immediately or we will be forced to fire on you. We attempted to issue Bachal, Rao replied. But it seems your communication system suffered interference. We've expressed our regret at the first contact between your forces and our mech warriors. I trust your warriors responsible for this provocation have been punished? I share your regret that we came to blows before proper diplomacy could be conducted, Milovich said, brushing over the question. But on behalf of Lorena Johannesson, protector of Roskin Colony, I must again ask that you withdraw your troops. You come here armed for war, Captain. Star Captain, Rao corrected. Star Captain, quite right. You've come armed for war. We are a peaceful people, but we are prepared to defend ourselves. Rao fixed him with a cold look. By the ancient rights of the clans, I claim this world and its people, Rao said slowly. I issue challenge to your warriors that this be settled in honorable combat on a field of your choosing. You may choose your forces, and they shall be matched appropriately. I think you'll find our defenses are, Rouse snorted. <sighs> the pile of earth and mud you've erected will not save you. Do not understand free birth. I offer you mercy. Send your best mech warriors and the Goliath Scorpions shall match them. If they are defeated... My warriors and I shall take your colony into the protection of our clan. If you triumph, we shall leave this world unharmed. Honor demands no less. Milovich studied Rao for a moment. We may choose the grounds? He asked. It is the way of the clans, Rao said. What forces do you bid? Milovich inclined his head, speaking into his collar. Gorton switched to their private comm channel. Do you think you can take one of them? The colonel whispered. I'm not sure. Yes or no, do you think you can do it? If I have to, Gordon admitted. That assault mech could be trouble. Good, power up and get over here. The private line went dead, and Milovich spoke aloud again. 
Very well, Star Captain. The tradition of the honor duel is known among us. We shall meet you, and this will be our champion. Gorton had already put Tamoy on full power. He marched his battle mech down the main boulevard and came to a halt behind the trenches. Just as the invaders wore their scorpion sigils openly, so too did Gorton's mech have its own icon. A snarling warrior maiden clutching a naginata, standing atop a pile of severed heads. The image was emblazoned on the center of the mech's chest, along with the hiragana lettering for Tamoy. The mech was a black knight, a model from the old Star League, Gorton's pride and joy. She was an old but formidable warrior, just like her pilot. He watched the camera link, studying Star Captain Rao. Though his face remained hidden, the look in his eyes shone clear. He stared at Gorton's mech with incredible intensity. There was no fear, only a mixture of recognition and something else. Hatred. Gorton couldn't fathom what would provoke a reaction like that. But the periphery was full of maniacs. The Black Knight Tomoy, piloted by Gorton, our mech warrior, Colonel Milovich said with relish. I'm sure it is more than a match for any of your mechs. The battle? The battle shall be at Agrippa Lake, 20 kilometers from here. We sighted it on our descent, Rao replied coolly. Very well. Our great rye star mech warrior, Cattell, shall face your champion in her hellbringer. Dawn tomorrow. Is that settled, Freebirth? Dawn tomorrow, Milovich agreed. Well bargained and done. Quite so. Rao barked an order to his troops, and they remounted their vehicle. At least Gordon wouldn't have to face the giant. He watched the hovercraft and the Goliath Scorpion mechs return to the forest, all save a peculiar machine whose arms ended in a pair of massive particle projectile cannons. It seemed to regard the field, and Gorton's Black Knight in particular, Cattell and her Hellbringer, no doubt. He felt as though a pair of eyes, hard and hateful, stared at him from that mech. Then, it turned, and disappeared into the forest with the others. Agrippa Lake, Roskin, Core War Deep Periphery, 22nd of May, 3049. The walk to Agrippa Lake was eerily pleasant. Gorton's vodka bottle was strapped down in the holster of his pilot's chair, where most mech warriors kept a pistol for emergencies. A quick pull was enough to steady his hands. Tomoy had seen him through worse. He kept the mech at a light jog, one eye on his scanners, the other watching the forest he moved through. The mist had come in again during the night, one of the most pleasant things about Roskin. Hot days, cold nights. Like the world itself was trying to cool down from the day's work. At last, he reached Agrippa Lake, a vast silver disk stretching off into the mist. There was a clearing along its shores, and up into the hills, Huge swaths of forest had been cut down into a logging trail. He and Tomoy had done a fair amount of the logging themselves. The mech's giant saw could do the work of a hundred lesser machines, and her dexterous hand could carry a whole load by itself. It was dull work, but it was better than what Gordon had been doing for most of his life. None of the trees ever begged him for mercy. As before, 
The clan mechs emerged one by one from the tree line at the far side of the clearing. Dawn's light had begun to pierce the morning mist. The leader, the battle mech with a face like a scowling god, stood at the forefront again. A message came through on the open band. Freebirth, said Star Captain Rao. Do you understand the nature of this trial of possession? Me and your champ fight it out. Winner takes the colony, that right? Gordon replied, trying to sound casual. There was no need to let the invaders know how scared he was. F. The victor may also claim the defeated warrior and their mech is a Sorla. The honor of representing Clan Goliath Scorpion goes to mech warrior Cattell, pilot of our star's Hellbringer. In this solemn matter, let none interfere. With that, the comms went dead. The Hellbringer stepped forth a square-shouldered, heavily-armed machine. It stood and faced him across the clearing, totally still. For a moment, Gordon thought the damn thing was going to bow to him like they were in a dojo. Then Tomoe's scanners blared that they detected a mech's engine going hot. Cattell wasn't waiting. She was charging up. Gorton wasted no time pushing Tomoy back into action. He ran her in a wide arc, keeping his left side to the Hellbringer. Its first volley, a pair of brilliant blue PPC bolts went wide. Then, the clan mech was on the move. A streak of missiles followed close on, boxing Gordon in. He threw Tomoy into quick reverse, skidding her to a halt and spun to face the Hellbringer head on. Warning lights flared. An impact had struck Tomoy's shoulder and Gorton hadn't even noticed. She'd armor enough to keep soldiering on, though. With practiced ease, Gorton sighted in on the Hellbringer and powered up his weapons. Alpha Strike. That was the way. End this quickly. He had ten tons on the Hellbringer, at a guess. He couldn't have armor on par with Tomoy, even if its firepower was impressive. He raced toward the Hellbringer as the clan pilot stood her ground, firing repeatedly at him. One shot took Tomoy in the torso, another in her left arm. Sparks flew, warning lights triggered, but Gorton waited, thumb braced against his firing stud. Then it came, Tomoy's voice, clear, crisp, and feminine, recorded centuries ago. First, it spoke in Japanese, then repeated the words in English, a design quirk no one had ever bothered to fix. He understood both, of course, but it was on the English that he slammed the firing stud down on. Tagetu Laku, Tomoy said. Target locked. Every laser and PPC on Tomoy's chassis burned into life. A brilliant volley of blue and green ripped into the Hellbringer's frame. He followed it quickly with a series of laser bursts from Tomoy's chassis, then another shot from the PPC in her arm. Netsu Jotai Keho, Tomoy said. The heat gauged dangerously near red. Heat level warning. Yeah, I feel it, old girl, Gordon whispered back. He'd done damage, but not enough. The Hellbringer was still standing. It strafed to the side, firing. The pilot's precision was incredible. She was running at full speed and still landing hits on a moving target. If Gordon hadn't been that target, he would have almost admired her. Free birth, a voice crackled over his comm unit. Cattell. Gorton realized. She sounded young. You lack discipline, she chided. I have the blood of Kerensky's greatest warriors in my veins. You have no hope of victory. Gorton darted to Moy through another volley of shots. Water, 
He had to head for water. His heat gauge still wavered painfully close to critical. Returning fire now would be disastrous. I got killers in my line going back ten generations, Gordon grunted. Nothing to brag about, kid. Know this free birth, I shall give you no quarter. A bondsman like you would only shame my clan. Gordon switched his comms off. He couldn't understand a word the woman was saying. She was clearly as nuts as the rest of her people. He slowed Tomoy down and rotated her right side to face the Hellbringer as he reached the water's edge. A fall wouldn't help him in this fight, and he knew there was plenty of muck beneath the lake's surface that could trip up his old mech. Another volley of missiles impacted all around him, short-range projectiles. A few found their mark, and suddenly, his heat gauge spiked again. Friday heat sink, damn. Crazy she might be. Stupid? She wasn't. She was picking his mech apart with incredible precision. He switched his comm back on, hearing Cattell's gloating voice. And there is nowhere you can hide from me, free birth. She hissed. Face your death like a warrior, and I will make it swift. It's more than you deserve for defiling that machine. Defiling what? Gordon asked, completely perplexed. He spun Tomoy around. He had to keep her moving until he could fire his weapons again, without roasting himself. Another shot struck Tomoy's torso, tearing off one of her lasers. Just my luck, Gordon thought. Well, at least it'll help with the heat problem. Can't overheat if I can't fire the damn gun. He forced Tomoy up out of the water and moved across the clearing. The Hellbringer kept base with him, but luckily its next salvo went wide. Cattell was getting too eager, like most young pilots. One good hit made her think she'd won the battle already. You know what you have done, Cattell continued. That Black Knight is a sacred weapon. It belonged to the ancient Star League. It belongs to us. Gorton increased speed, trying to outpace the Hellbringer despite his mech's protesting heat gauge. He headed up the ridge onto the logging trail, the Hellbringer in hot pursuit. Lasers and missiles streaked by, but with Tomoy going close to her top speed, it was difficult for Cattell to acquire a lock. My people fought for the Star League, Gorton shot back. Tomoy's mine. You can have her when you pry my charred corpse out of her cockpit. I intend to, Cattell said. The Goliath Scorpions will redeem that battle mech. The damage you have done to it will be repaired. A PPC shot shook Tomoy in the rear. Gorton's scanners flickered and died. Electronics sent into a cascading failure by the sudden burst of energy. Don't do this to me, girl. Come on, don't do this. Gorton pleaded as he worked the controls. He could still move, but his sensors were blind. He flicked reboot switches frantically, running Tomoy in a zigzag up the logging trail. It was a dangerous game he was playing. There are plenty of old growth stumps here that could trip her up. Of course, the Hellbringer would have to contend with that too. Gorton hoped a little distance could buy him time to think, to plan. He felt the whole mech shake as another wave of missiles struck her leg. Dizziness washed over him, feedback from his neural helmet. The mech tumbled forward. Gorton jerked back on the throttle, willing her not to fall. She teetered drunkenly, and he tilted the foot pedals, sending her into a crouch. Teeth chattering, Gorton grabbed the vodka, pressed it to his lips, and drank a fiery shot. The liquor's burn made him angry, fearless. He embraced the old rage he used to feel as a young man, the bloodlust. Another shot hit Tomoy's shoulder. 
the scanner surged back to life. Tomoy's armor was nearly gone in a dozen places. The firing control for her PPC was fried. Multiple heat sinks were burned out. She was wounded, but she could still fight. With an animal yell, Gorton forced Tomoy back to her feet, and he rounded on the Hellbringer. Cattell was closing on him fast, firing everything she had. Missiles and lasers impacted all around his mech. But Gorton returned in kind. He triggered another volley, linking all of Tomoy's remaining lasers and firing them in a brilliant burst of light at the oncoming mech. He was rewarded with the sound of an explosion. The Hellbringer's missile pod was sheared clean off. Its left arm was pitted and blackened, sparks and coolant leaking from it like the blood of a dying man. He fired again, holding his ground as the Hellbringer came on, his lasers tearing up tree stumps and mud with wild abandon. Your defiance is useless, free birth! Kettle roared. You shame yourself and your legacy with what you have done to that Black Knight. You disgrace a warrior's weapon. You turn it into nothing but a beast of burden for the laborers beneath you. You shall pay for that transgression with your life. The arm. Gorton realized that's what this insane clan was ranting about. He had replaced Tamoy's left arm with an agro saw, a tool for threshing and cutting down trees. It was more useful for the peaceful life he'd wanted to live. Now, these clanners wanted him dead for it. He backed up Tamoy up the hill, scanning his surroundings as he kept a stream of fire on the Hellbringer. Cattell was brave, but the damage he'd done was enough to give her pause. If she was smart, she could have just backed off and let her PPCs do their work. Cattell was young, though. She wanted the glory of watching his mech burn up close, of watching him die, not through a scanner screen, but with her own eyes. There, a thrill ran through him as he sighted what he'd been looking for. He kept backing up, drawing Cattell in. Tomoy's calm voice informed him he was beyond the critical heat threshold, that she was engaging an automatic shutdown sequence. Gorton snatched the bottle of vodka, spilling it over his coolant vest, and gulped down another mouthful. Not yet, girl. Not yet, he shouted as he hit the manual override. More warning lights came on. Sweat was pouring down his brow. Instruments around him were glowing red. Sparks flew from one console. He was pushing Tomoy to her limit, beyond it with each volley. Wouldn't be long before he caused another catastrophic failure or gave himself heat stroke. Cattell thundered toward him, weapons firing. He could practically feel the bloodlust emanating from her. The mech warriors of House Kirita called it Saki, the killing urge so powerful that others could sense it. Gorton had felt that way many times before, and he was so sure others had felt it coming from him too. When the Hellbringer was close enough, Gorton acted. Tomoy was near crippled, but her legs still worked fine. Next to him was a stack of freshly cut timber, abandoned when the clanners had made their landing. He worked one of his controls, and Tomoy kicked it with all the might the 75-ton machine could muster. The logs flew toward the Hellbringer, impacted harmlessly against it, then fell beneath its feet. The mech already at top speed. There was no way even a pilot as skilled as Cattell could remain standing with a dozen tumbling logs beneath it. The Hellbringer stumbled and plunged backward, hitting the ground hard. Gorton seized the opportunity. He was still too far beyond Tomoy's heat threshold to safely trigger her lasers. But her fist and agro saw were more than enough. 
Tomoe lunged at the fallen Hellbringer and pummeled it mercilessly. An armored foot stomped through its shoulder, severing its PBC, and the agro saw sparked across the fallen mech's chest. Kachel forced the Hellbringer to stand as blows rained down on it. Lasers pulsed, blasting into Moy's chest. But Gorton felt no fear. He hacked and slashed and pounded, his vision gone blood red. At last, the saw sheared clear through one of the Hellbringer's knee actuators, and the machine fell to the ground once again. The laser stopped firing. Some still sparked uselessly, but it was obvious the Hellbringer had suffered a catastrophic failure. He'd ripped half the mech's armor away, exposing its internal structure and circuitry, like the bones and sinews of a corpse. Gordon placed one of Tomoe's feet on the Hellbringer's torso, just beneath the cockpit. Do it, you freeborn filth! Cattell hissed. Gordon could feel the heat in his veins, the shaking in his fingers. So many times he'd been here before, heard cries for mercy, oaths of defiance. He had never listened to any of them, just finished the job and moved on. Today was different, though. He'd come to Roskin to get away from the screams of dying mech warriors. He wasn't about to change that. Quarter, Gorton said. Never, Cattell growled back. I'm not asking you, kid. I'm giving it to you. Fight's over. I win. He switched his comms to a wide band and turned to Moy's ravaged chassis to face the other clan mechs. You hear that? He called. I win. Now let's talk. Face to face. This has been an excerpt from the short story The Plowshare by DGP Rector. The conclusion of this amazing story can be found in Shrapnel, the Battletech magazine, issue number 10. And that's a wrap to our fifth episode of Bungletech. We hope it was a blast. As a reminder, we'd love to hear from you. Do reach out. You can find us on Twitter at Bungletech, tweet, and via email at bungletech at outlook.com. Also, as a quick side, get hyped for our next episode in which we chat with one of the key creators of our savior in rulebook form, the Battletech Manual. Until next time, mech warriors, good fortunes on the battlefield. Selah. All podcast objectives complete. Podcast shutdown sequence initiated. <laughs>